It is great to be here with you this morning and worship on this uh, Lord's Day. And uh, your hospitality, your friend, friendliness, your warmth has just been fantastic. And so my wife and I are so privileged to be here with you. Uh, you know, one of the things that you guys have told us uh, over this past weekend is that you guys are so friendly. And I want to say, well, yeah, back at you. You guys are so friendly. And so we're grateful for that. Uh, what we've been looking at is we've been looking at uh, the Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption on Friday and Saturday. And there's a sense in which what we want to do this morning is we want to continue to do so, but we want to descend from the heights and the glory and the majesty of the triune God uh, dwelling in eternity. And we want to descend uh, into the depths, the blood, the sweat and the tears, if you will, of the sufferings of Christ so that we can better understand how it is that Christ and his work has brought us redemption. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at uh, the work of Christ uh, through uh, Hebrews chapter 9. And so if you would please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 15 through 28. So that's verses 15 through the end of the chapter. I'll say a brief word of prayer, and then uh, we will look at the message. And so Hebrews chapter 9... And we'll be reading verses 15 through the end of the chapter. So let's, uh, let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him." May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. 
Uh, Let's uh, bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you are kind and merciful to us. And in the same way that you spoke and created worlds, brought them into existence, things that did not exist and that now do exist, we pray that you would speak by the power of your word into our hearts. And for those who do not yet know you, that you would raise them from death to life For those who do know you, that you would, by the power of your word, further conform us to the image of your Son, that we might more brilliantly shine forth the glory of your righteousness and holiness in Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the things that we want to look at this morning as we look here at the ninth chapter of Hebrews is we want to understand uh, what it is that the author of Hebrews is doing and, and why it is that he talks about the, the sacrifice of Christ at this point in his epistle to Hebrews, to the Hebrews. And that the Hebrews, uh, the, the Jewish Christians, the Jewish converts to Christianity, uh, had received the gospel initially, but then in the face of persecution and trial and uh, difficulty, they thought maybe we should go back to Judaism. They thought that if we're being persecuted for the sake of Christ, why don't we go back to what we know? Maybe the persecution will end. People will no longer uh, go after us because of our faith in Christ. And so one of the things that the author of the book of Hebrews does is he has gone through step by step showing each different way in which Christ is superior to everything that has gone before. He's shown how he is superior to the angels, how Christ is superior to the law of Moses, how he's superior to Moses himself. Moses was simply a servant in God's house, whereas Christ is a a son over God's house. He's superior to Joshua, who brought uh, the people into the promised land, but at the same time, Jesus is one greater than Joshua who brings us into the gates of the new heavens and the new earth itself. He's also greater than Aaron, Aaron who died and then whose Levitical sons were only priests by virtue of genealogical descent where Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, by the sworn covenantal oath and appointment of God the Father. And so here, as these Jewish Christians were thinking about going back to the Mosaic Covenant, he shows this is how Christ is superior to all of these things. But now he adds yet one more way in which Christ is superior and that he shows that Christ is the better and greater sacrifice than all of the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Now, when it comes to Old Testament animal sacrifices, this is something that Many of us, at least at one way or another, we find it perhaps difficult for us to really kind of wrap our minds around it. We don't understand particularly why it is that God would have his people sacrifice animals. And in fact, some people have even found Christianity therefore repulsive because they say, why is it that a merciful and loving God would require the sacrifice of an animal to somehow atone for sin, let alone for the sacrifice 
of a human being. How and in what way is this loving? Moreover, I think when we think about it, <coughs> I think that given the great cultural and historical distance, it's just, it's just tough for us to, to wrap our minds around it. Most of us are not familiar with what it takes to kill an animal and, and, and then to, to be able to use it. You know, blessedly, we get to stroll in the air-conditioned and heated aisles of the grocery store as we load our, you know, sides of beef uh, into the shopping cart. We don't have to slaughter the animal. And so it's something that's at a distance to us. But at the same time, I think what we have to recognize is that whatever difficulty we may have, and especially if we are in any way repulsed by the idea of animal sacrifice, it's perhaps because we don't want to look too closely. Because if we look too closely, we might actually begin to recognize that it's not so much that the animal sacrifice is gruesome, it's instead that we in our sinfulness are the ones that are gruesome and difficult to look at. Because what we don't begin to ponder sufficiently enough is the idea that it's, if this is what God requires in order for us to have fellowship with him, then it means that sin is a grievous and heinous thing. Excuse me. Sin is a grievous and heinous thing if it requires the shedding of blood in order to breach the gap, in order to, to, to overcome this obstacle that stands between us and fellowship with God. And so when we look at the animal sacrifices, these are some of the things that we have to come to grips with. But in particular, where these first century Jewish Christians were having trouble is that they wanted to turn away from the sacrifice of Christ and they wanted to go back to these animal sacrifices and that what they didn't realize is that these animal sacrifices were in and of themselves insufficient to bring about the forgiveness of their sins because they were only temporary placeholders that pointed them forward to Christ, the one true sacrifice. And so this is why the author of Hebrews was telling them in a number of words, don't go back. You can't go back to the Old Testament. You know, the clock of redemptive history has ticked forward and you can't Turn it back. Do not turn away from Christ because he's the only one who can bring about the forgiveness of your sins. It's his sacrifice and his sacrifice alone that gives us eternal life and salvation. And so this is why the author focuses so much here in the ninth chapter upon the sacrifice of Christ and how it is superior to all of the other Old Testament sacrifices that have gone before. But in order for us to understand and appreciate what the author of Hebrews is talking about here, we ourselves, I think, need to take a journey back into the Old Testament so that we can, I think, have a conception as to why and what was going on with the Old Testament sacrifices. It'll help us to understand going forward as we look then at Hebrews chapter 9, why 
he was pointing to, why the author was pointing to Christ's sacrifice. So what we want to do first is we want to go back to God and Abraham in the Old Testament and see what goes on with animal sacrifice there. Second, then we'll look at the nature of Christ's sacrifice, particularly as it relates to the curse-bearing nature of Christ's work for us, what it is that his sacrifice accomplishes. And then third and finally, we want to see what the author of Hebrews has to say here in the ninth chapter about the fact that we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ and what that gives us, what that accomplishes for us. So let's give thought first to, to God and Abraham. And that when we think about the sacrifice of Christ, there's a sense in which we're looking at the answer to the question. And if we don't first ponder the question, we might not appreciate the answer, let alone maybe even not even be able to understand the answer. And so we want to go back, as I said, to God's covenant with Abraham. As, as you know, in the opening pages of the Bible, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He draws him out of the land uh, of the Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis chapter 12. And so then he begins to, to, to show Abraham his favor. And Abraham comes to God and he says, look, I'm concerned because I don't have an heir. I don't know who's going to inherit all of my wealth and my possessions. In fact, I only have my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. And so God says, all right, I'm going to give you a promise that an heir from your own body will, will, will come forth. I give you that promise. Moreover, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the heavens, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And I'll also give you this promised land. I'll give you everything that you see before you. And so as God goes and makes this covenantal promise to Abraham, he gives him some further instructions. He says here in Genesis chapter 15, verse 9, he says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, at first glance, I think this seems perhaps rather odd and especially foreign to us. What on earth is God having Abraham do by taking these animals, killing them and cutting them in half? It seems rather gruesome and, and perhaps even unnecessary. Why would God have Abraham bring him animals and cut them in half like this? Well, for a moment, let's hold that question off and let's just set it off to the side. We will answer it. But let's just set it off to the side and continue giving thought to what's going on here between God and Abraham. So he cuts the animals in half. And then we read in Genesis 15, 12, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This, I think, is one of the most important parts of this whole covenant ceremony between God and Abraham. Abraham is dead asleep. He's asleep. We can say in that sense, he's doing nothing. This is important. Now, while he's asleep, God 
gives to Abraham a series of promises in verses 13 and following that his descendants will be sojourners in the land of Egypt for 400 years, that God is going to judge the Egyptians, that he would bring his descendants out of Egypt, and that Abraham would live until he was very old. And so God makes these series of promises to him. But then what happens next is equally as important as Abraham's slumbering. We read in verses 17 and 18, when, God, the, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So God makes this promise, but now you see this smoking oven or this torch pass between the animal halves. Now, what is that? Well, what we want to do is recognize that this is the presence of God. If you fast forward and you think, for example, to the Exodus, where God's presence was with his people, Israel, in the presence of a pillar of cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night, we can say that this is a miniaturized uh, representation of God's presence. Think of a miniature pillar of fire passing between the severed animal halves. Now, the question here is, is what is God doing? What's the meaning of this act? Well, he promises a number of things and he passes between the severed animal halves. But what is God doing? We get an answer from the prophet Jeremiah. And in this context, in Jeremiah 34, verse 18, the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was excoriating the people because they broke God's covenant. And he says, he says this, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. Now, this is important. You see, in the ancient world, when two parties would get together to make a covenant or an agreement, they would sever the animals, they would make essentially an aisle, and they would walk together between them as they would make their promise. And they would say, I'll keep my word, and you keep your word. But what happens if we don't keep our word? Well, this is where you would say that they were swearing a self-maledictory oath. What in the world is a self-maledictory oath? Well, we know what that is. We do it all the time. Even as kids, we do it all the time. My children do it from time to time. Say, are you sure? Is everything okay with them? (laughs) Why on earth would they swear self-maledictory oaths? Think about it in this way. What happens, for example, when my one of my sons says, Dad... I really want these first-gen Nike Air Jordans. He's into this thing. When I was growing up in in my my teens and 20s watching Michael Jordan, never in a million years did I ever think that my child would want those tennis shoes. So it's just a strange world in which we live. But okay, we'll set that, that befuddlement aside and say, all right, 
you want it. Okay, well, why do you want these? Well, because they're really cool. Okay, you want these shoes. All right, I get it. They're, they're, they're expensive. Okay, uh, and he says, I promise you, I'll clean my room for a month solid. And if I don't, you can ground me for a month. That's a self-maledictory oath. Let's make an agreement. You'll bless me with the tennis shoes. I'll clean my room for a month. And if I don't, I'll suffer the curse of the covenant and that you get to ground me for a month. And I say, no deal. I get nothing out of this. (laughs) But you get the idea. That's a self-maledictory oath. And what God was saying through the prophet Jeremiah, he's saying, you've broken my covenant. And because you've broken my covenant, what's happened to these animals will happen to you. You will suffer the curse. Now, think about this. This is amazing. As God makes his covenant with Abraham, Abraham is asleep. He's sawing logs. And God walks between the severed animal halves and he makes Abraham a series of promises. He covenants to him blessings. But the fact that God walks between the severed animal halves alone, God is saying, if I don't keep my word, may I suffer the curse. Now, we know that God is going to keep his word. But because Abraham is fast asleep, he's also saying, if you, Abraham, don't keep your word, I will suffer the curse for you. I'll suffer the curse for you. That's just unthinkable that the creator of heaven and earth would condescend to a mere sinful human being and not only make such an amazing promise, but also say, I will bear the curse. And he swears upon himself that self-maledictory oath. Okay. Now we might think this is okay. This is interesting, but it's ancient history. Thousands of years ago, what in the world does it have to do with me? What does Paul say? Who who are we? How does Paul define us? He says in Galatians 3, 7, then know that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. You are sons of Abraham. You are the fulfillment of God's promise that he made to Abraham so long ago. Galatians 3, 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The promise that God made to Abraham is the promise that you and I still enjoy at this very moment. That means that what happened between God and Abraham is still ever relevant. So let's see the relevance of God's promise and see how he fulfilled it by turning now back to Hebrews chapter 9 so that we can see what the author of Hebrews has to say at this point. Now, the author spends the first part of chapter 9 
and this is uh, point, point two here, that the, uh, he spends the first part of chapter 9 extolling the superiority of the new covenant to the old because it rests upon the work of Christ. And he turns our attention to Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. And he draws our attention to the events that unfolded between God and Abraham in verses 16 and 17. But let me make this one observation. One of my New Testament colleagues once said that every single English translation of Hebrews chapter 9 verses 16 and 17 gets it wrong. And so you have to look at the Greek to see what the Greek says. And this is a translation that comes from O. Palmer Robertson in his book, Christ of the Covenants. And it reads this way. And as soon as you hear it, I think you'll understand what the author is saying. For where there is a covenant, there is also the obligation of the death of the covenant maker. For a covenant is valid on the basis of dead bodies. It is not valid while the covenant maker lives. Were it not for the fact that we just looked at Abraham's covenant with God, that he makes over dead bodies, the severed animals, we might not understand what the author is talking about. But he's explaining how and why Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And he is explaining this on the basis of the covenant making ritual that you cut the animals in half, and God makes the covenant with Abraham over dead bodies. But as long as the covenant maker is still alive, it means that the curse is still out there as a possibility. And so now what he's ultimately saying is he's saying that because Jesus has died, this is the way that God has borne the curse of the covenant He has done so through the work and the person of his son. This is where we have to remember, Abraham was asleep. God does it all. And when God promised to bear the curse of the covenant, this finds its fulfillment in Jesus, which is why Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 12 and following, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does um, who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. As gruesome as the animals in their death are when you you know in, in, you contemplate them being cut in half it only gives us the smallest of glimpses into the curse bearing work of Christ you know so often i think that it's a problem for us because we 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 find it disgusting and understandably so it's like when i was in my early teen years and my dad was helping me punch my man card. He said, all right, we're going to, you know, we went fishing. And he says, all right. I said, are we, what are we going to do with the fish when we catch them? Well, we're going to prepare them to eat them. Really? <laughs> yeah. So we caught the fish. He's like, all right, take the fish and whack it against the rock. And it's kind of like, you know, no, 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 come on. Whack it really hard. You know, so, okay, pow, whack it against the, all right, now get the knife and I want you to cut it open. I was like, all right, I guess so. How do you hang on to this thing? Just grab it. Stop being a girly man. And so I'm like, okay, so I'm cutting it open. All right. All right. Now 
jam your fist in there and grab all the guts. It's like, oh, no, come on. You know, why don't you do this, Dad? Hey, stop your jawing. Put your hand in there and grab it out. And he even got a little testy. He's like, come on, man up. Let's go. Grab the guts. All right, fine. You know, you know, rip the guts out. That's what I think of when I think of animal sacrifice. It's disgusting. I want to go through the aisles of Costco saying, yeah, here's my animal sacrifice right here. No dirtiness, no no grossness. You just, there it is. It's all clean, no fur, no hoofs, no nothing. It's just, you know, nice, clean, clean piece of meat, right? Well, I think what we're doing is potentially we're not just recoiling against the gruesome nature of the sacrifice, but what we, I think, don't necessarily realize is that we're looking into the mirror of the gravity of our sin. But more importantly, we are looking into a picture of Christ's suffering for us. We were the ones who deserved to suffer the curse, to have our bodies broken because of our sin. We're the ones who've been unfaithful to God. We're the rebels. We've sinned in Adam and we bear the guilt of his sin. We've also added to Adam's guilt by every single sinful thought, word, and deed that we've ever committed in our entire lives. And yet in His mercy and in His grace and in His love, God stepped into the breach and He gave us His only begotten Son as the fulfillment of that promise that He made to Abraham so long ago when He swore that oath of self-malediction upon Himself. Jesus bore the curse throughout the entirety of his life. It's not just something that he did upon the cross. You think of it from the moment of the of the birth of Christ, he was not placed in a beautiful cradle, but in a disgusting animal feeding trough. He was reviled by his people, insulted. He was cursed. He did not have a home. He did not live in a palace, as he says in Luke 9, 58. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. And of course, he was beaten and he was crucified. And it culminated in his cry of forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Christ's curse-bearing work that makes his suffering and his death infinitely superior to any kind of animal sacrifice. In the words of John Newton, Come sinners, view the Lamb of God, wounded and dead and bathed in blood. Behold his side and venture near. The well of endless life is here. So this brings us to our third and final point, sprinkled with blood, is that the author points us to the covenant ratification uh, rites in verse 19 in the various parts of the tabernacle that had to be sprinkled with blood. And in verse 
20, he says, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In other words, everything had to be sprinkled with the blood of the sacrificial animal in order to be purified so that it would remove the defilement of sin. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And yet what we recognize is that not only the temple furniture, not only the the, the tabernacle and everything else had to be sprinkled with blood, but even the people themselves. And again, this might cause us to recoil. You know, we're, you're taught from the youngest of ages, don't get anything on your clothing. And so to be sprinkled with blood, it's, it's counterintuitive. And yet what the author is pointing out here is he's saying, look, this is the means of your redemption. This is what brings you the forgiveness of your sins. It was your life that was required by the law, but Christ has instead stepped into the gap and he has shed his blood for you. And thus to be sprinkled with his blood is to give you the forgiveness of your sins. There is a fountain filled with blood that is drawn from Emmanuel veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood are washed of all their guilt and stains. That's what Christ accomplishes for you in his curse-bearing work. For Christ, verse 24, has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The animals were just simply pointers, shadows, as to the ultimate sacrifice that would come to Christ. And it was the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. In Christ's suffering and curse-bearing work, we find forgiveness, we find life, and we find healing. God promised Abraham that he would bear the curse and bear the curse He did. The Son of God has borne that awful load for us so that we could have eternal life. So when you look and you contemplate the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, you think about those animals cut in half that God had Abraham sever. If you recoil at that, pause and stop. And think about the disgusting nature of your sin. Think about the weighty penalty of the curse of death. And think most importantly of the depths of the suffering of Christ. As we think upon these things, we have to pray that by grace through faith and through the sovereign work of the Spirit, God would enable us to look upon such things and not to turn away in disgust. I mean, the prophet Isaiah tells us as much when he says in Isaiah 53.3 that Jesus was one from whom men hide their faces. You know, when the wife and I were one time returning from a trip, we were coming uh, off the, the freeway exit in, or sorry, off the airport exit onto the freeway. And as we came onto the freeway, there was a car accident. The car flipped over the median 
and just crashed, you know, up against the median and the, uh, across five lanes of traffic through the closed windows of our car, I could hear a young woman screaming. And I quick pulled over to the side of the road and jumped out of the car. And I, with every step, every fiber of my being said, stop and don't go because I was terrified as to what I was going to find. I wanted to turn away. I didn't want to look. I think that's the nature, our inherent reaction, the immediate gut reaction to the sacrifice of Christ. We don't want to look because we know how gruesome it is. We know how terrible it is. We know how ugly it is. But by God's grace in Christ, through the sovereign work of the Spirit, we should pray that God would turn our eyes to the cross of Christ and that as we behold it, that we would see the grotesque nature of the sacrifice and see how ugly our sin is, but that God would transform it into a thing of beauty for us because we would see that in the outstretched arms of Christ, is the greatest outpouring of love upon undeserving sinners that has ever been given to a sinful world. As you hear his groaning upon the tree, don't recoil from the horror of your sin or flee. Do not try to hide what cannot be hidden, but rather take joy and rejoice in Christ's curse-bearing work for you. And rejoice and ask that God would give you a repentant heart so that you would give thanks for this gift of love, God's promise of curse-bearing for you. You see, the author's recipients were thinking of going back to, to the Old Testament, which may not be a temptation for us. But how often do we, when we sin, we instead of repenting, we, we try to flee from God. Or maybe we're afraid that our sin is too grievous that he won't forgive us. Or perhaps maybe we doubt Christ's love for us. May we cast all of these doubts and these sinful attitudes aside. May we repent of them only by God's grace and may we instead flee to the cross and rest in his completed work. Know that God has loved you so much and he has been so faithful throughout the ages that he fulfilled his self-maledictory oath to Abraham by sending his son to bear the curse of sin for you. In the light of this, think of these words. They come to us from Isaac Watts. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. Beloved in Christ, rejoice that Christ has borne the curse for you. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have sent us your son, that you have given us 
your faithfulness throughout the ages. That you told us through Abraham that you would bear the curse of the covenant and bear it indeed you have. You have sent your only begotten son to suffer upon that cross so that we would not have to suffer, so that we would not have to be exiled from your presence, so that we would have life eternal. What wonderful manner of love is this, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We pray, O Lord, that we would not seek shelter, we would not seek any other remedy, we would not seek assistance from any other source, save but through your love in Christ and the Spirit. May we be filled with joy because Christ has borne the curse, because he hung upon the tree, because he bore the curse to redeem us from it. We pray, O Lord, that you would fill us with an eagerness to tell others of Christ's work, that you would strengthen us in our faith. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.